I feel like when I talk to DEI officers, when I talk to learning managers, and these are the people I serve, right? Um, they work so hard to get the programming, to hire people, to make sure that people feel included, that ERG members are empowered. And then when 30 people, 70 people, even 200 people show up, it's heartbreaking because the companies have 2,000, you know, folks. Welcome to the Inclusive Leaders Podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical advice shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson.io, the world's first DEI operating system. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io. The link to connect with us is in the description. Let's get back to the episode. All right, so Jade Flower, I know you as an amazing and creative DEI professional, um, but for the listeners that don't know you yet, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Awesome, thank you so much, Rob, for having me. I am a writer, master educator, and narrative for inclusion specialist. That's my fancy title that's on LinkedIn. Uh, But if you look me up outside of LinkedIn, I'm also a poet, um, LGBTQ activist and advocate, and six feet tall, so that's nice. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and you know, in your opinion, what would it look like if DEI training was required across all organizations? Dope. So I have been talking to you and I talk to anybody who listens to me that DEI training needs to be required, DEIB training specifically, because you know we require sexual harassment training we require discrimination training. And we watch these videos where it's like, what should Tom do, A, B, or C? And it's like, C is the answer always. And you pass the test and you never think about it again. So it's like, how can we say inclusion and belonging is important? And how, in the same breath, say that inclusion and belonging is optional. Like, I feel like when I talk to DEI officers, when I talk to learning managers, and these are the people I serve, right? Um, they work so hard to get the programming, to hire people, to make sure that people feel included, that ERG members are empowered. And then when 30 people, 70 people, even 200 people show up, it's heartbreaking because the companies have 2,000, you know, folks. Um, So something has to happen. Something has to change. Like, so for one, it has to be required, not highly suggested, not if you have the time or prefer to do this, it has to be required. That's my belief. I think you also have to enable people to do this kind of work. Like you have to carve time out in their work day. You have to tie it to their OKRs, their KPIs, their VPGs, all the acronyms of all the businesses. Um, and then, then lastly, it's just super important to articulate how it's important to the business and to their job function. So that's where I'm at. From your perspective, I know that you've been in the education space for quite some time and um, you're also working in sales. Um, Could you talk a little bit about the current company that you work with? Um, I I understand that it has three uh, specific focal points in order to make an impact in DEI, but could you talk about that? Yeah, so I'm at Cedar Spark, and Cedar Spark is a crowdfunding company. First, that's how we started 10 years ago. That's how I first heard about us. Uh, I was raising money for my first movie, which is a documentary about Black lesbian poets. 
And we ended up not going with them, but I was introduced to the company. And so what happens with independent film, with documentaries, with short films, is you get the you you raise the money and we raised fifteen thousand dollars to finish the movie it needed way more um but you raise the money you do the festival circuit maybe you do uh a screening at a college or two um maybe you get a deal at amazon and netflix and nobody really sees it maybe you make money maybe you don't and so what happened when i came on board as a team member at steven spark it was like an opportunity to say we are going to pay independent filmmakers. So with Seed and Spark and our product Film Forward, we're bringing film to organizations as a way to create inclusion, increase psychological safety, have tough conversations, um, and really grow uh, with story on teams. And so at the same time, each and every time one of our clients watches one of our films, we're also paying independent storytellers and filmmakers that are diverse. And that's super, super, super important to me. Uh, so that's what we're doing. We're using film, basically watching a film, having reflection questions, using research, using data, and giving that back to the organization. Uh, so we're talking to individuals and then leveling that up and having facilitations with team members and then leveling that up and reporting to organizations where are some of the weak spots, where are places they can grow and what are their team members saying. Yeah, and I can say that that experience was so immersive um, and beautiful. So like, you know, a few weeks ago, I was a part of that. Uh, one, I guess we, we kind of went to, through a training or a simulation of a training. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember that I walked away feeling like I had grown. Like I was a little bit uncomfortable when it came to some of the uh, conversations around, um, I think the, the emotionally charged conversations around DEI, mm -hmm. but having to speak to those and um, really gain, I guess, a sense of I guess, uh, communicate and navigate around those challenges in, in, in the workplace. It just made me feel really good after leaving. Almost like a, almost like a DEI workout in a way. Um, it was a good exercise. <laughs> and Rob, it's, it's great that you say that you felt uncomfortable because I think that is the number one sign of success, right? It's like feeling uncomfortable having conflict as a team member um, in an experience, like it's a sign of growth. It's a sign of commitment. Like we're not, when we talk about psychological safety, we're not like watch a movie, eat popcorn and everybody be nice to each other. Like you don't have to like all your coworkers, but you do have to respect them and have like shared values of how you treat each other. Uh, so the biggest thing we like to say is that we're giving, empowering people with the skills to navigate difference. So if you say blue and I say purple, it don't matter because our job, you know, I respect that and you respect me. But when we come to work, this is the thing that we're doing together. Um, team spirit wins games. That's how I put it. Like, this is how right. we make money together because we all believe in this vision of the company, whether that's we make markers, we serve diversity, equity, and inclusion, we are lawyers, you know, let's Captain Planet this thing. Right, right. Um, and I feel as though storytelling has a huge part uh, to play in DEI, especially when we start to look at, um, you know, the, the analysis and the numbers of DEI and, and being able to tell a story there. But um, could you talk about the role that storytelling can play on inclusivity in an organization mm -hmm. um, in the current social climates, especially? 
Absolutely. So you mentioned that I have an education background. So I like I am now now that I'm 37 years old. I am I feel comfortable saying that I'm a master educator. Right? I do not have any advanced degrees, but I have over 20 years experience uh, working in education with young people and young people learn a little bit different than adults. Uh, you know, they see visually, they want to touch things. You can learn audibly, you can learn by reading. But when it comes to adults, we really learn through uh, kinesthetic experiences, experiential experiences, and through story. Our minds remember stories better. And so it's different than saying, uh, Susie Q, don't touch Jay Flowers' hair, or Tim, don't ask somebody where they're from, or Keisha, don't do this. Like, no adult wants to be told they're wrong. When we come with story, we get to grow with the character, we get to empathize with the character, we get to relate to a situation and really pull out um, conversations, hard conversations from there. Uh, and you saw it like happening at that demo because uh, we weren't talking about each other personally. We weren't talking about our own experience, even though sometimes organically that happens. Uh, but the film is a launching point that we can all relate to. And the way you see a movie is not the way I'm going to see a movie. I saw, you know, Wakanda, Black Panther, and I was just floored by the very first part um, with the funeral and all the white. Um, but then I read an article that talked about how the underwater tribe that was like the anti-hero in the story was based off of Mayan and indigenous culture. And I, that hadn't even, I hadn't even realized that, you know what I'm saying? Cause I was looking for something different. So film is used as a tool for that. Like we're trying to grow psychological safety. Do I feel safe to be myself? Do I feel safe to challenge authority? Do I feel safe to make mistakes? And do I feel safe to contribute my ideas? And if you don't have all four of those things happening, um, then you're kind of working in the dark when it comes to inclusion and belonging. Can yeah. I ask you a question? Oh, please, yeah. <laughs> so you've heard of psychological safety before. So of, of those four levels, learner, uh, inclusion, challenger and contributor, like which one is the one you, is that's particularly important to you at your job? I would say contributor. Mm -hmm. um, well, and you mean personally or just at the job overall? Yeah, just in, in the workplace, like you feel good, like it's very important to you that you have contributor safety. So why? Oh yeah, so I feel as though, based on the way that my brain works, that um, I'm I'm great at being a facilitator of the party, but not the life of the party. Mm. So like changing conversation topics or um, driving the strategy that leads to the execution, I think that's kind of where I thrive. But um, as opposed to challenger, yeah, I'm not a challenger, um, not in a not in the corporate space. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I think I, I used to say that like challenger safety was my favorite because I love to tell the supervisor like no. <laughs> I love to tell the supervisor no and just see what happens. Um I'll be like, so why? Why do I have to do that? Um, but lately I've been feeling like you, like I like contributor. I like to give my ideas and say, oh, because I'm a genius, I'm that kid in class who's gonna right. raise each and every time I don't care if no one else answered a question yet like pick me like you know I know 
God, elementary school was torture. Uh, so yeah, contributor safety. And I had had some experiences where it's like, here, I give my idea, I give my idea. And sometimes it's shut down, but usually give it about three or six months. Like folks come back because I'm a genius. And so it's like, I want to be able to feel safe to know that I can throw those ideas out, even if they're wrong, even if they're left wall, um, and that people will appreciate it and listen. It makes me feel like I, I have some ownership in the team. I have some ownership in what I can do. And so we try to make sure that the film programming comes around those four topics, as well as active listening, accountability frameworks, and really follow the life cycle and journey of an employee. So we're going from onboarding to culture to inclusive leadership in the end, because that's the goal is to not just hire diverse, but to advance folks as well. Right. So you edu it's like you're educating them and you're kind of um, facilitating the actions. Um, right. Mm -hmm. In a way. So when it comes to big companies and small companies, I know there's kind of this perception of how DEI is in each of those types of companies. Um, but from your perspective, from what you've seen, do big companies execute differently uh, when it comes to their DEI strategies as opposed to smaller organizations? What are you, if I can ask, like, what are you referring yeah. to when you say there's a perception of big versus small? Well, larger organizations might have more bureaucracy and things mm -hmm. might be slower or take more time based on leadership's capacity, maybe. Okay. Um, and then smaller organizations seem to kind of be a little bit more scrappy and they get directly to the point of the challenge um, from what I've seen. Okay, dope, dope. I like that. And I guess that makes sense because these companies, there's some companies that have 20,000, 13,000, 50,000 employees. Personally, I think no company should be that big, but it is what it is. Um, my grandma worked at one of those big companies, right? She worked at KPMG. And every summer we went to Kingston, Maine. I'm from DC. So um, it's kind of like, it's like, it's not a small town anymore, but it's like a small town, big city. And I know you went to Howard, so HU, there we go. You know. <laughs> exactly. Um, so like every summer we went to Kingston, Maine, and I would see all these white people. I grew up in a very, I grew up in DC when DC was super, super, super chocolate. Um, so I would never really see folks that weren't like me, um, which was a gift and a curse in a way. And I would meet the president at KPMG and I was like, how is he the president? I thought Bill Clinton was the president, all these things. Um, but when my grandma retired 40 years later, everybody remembered me. I went to her retirement party and people were like, oh, do you still write poetry? Oh, remember when you won that spelling bee? And I'm like, girl, get out of my face. <laughs> I'm just, I'm grown now. But for me, like that's the marker of a great, diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, right? Like my grandmother retired after 40 years and those people remembered her grandchild. And I think that means something like, how are you keeping your staff? How are you retaining your staff? How are you growing your staff? And big companies have the largest responsibility because they 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 impact whole generations. You know what I'm saying? Like I try to imagine Detroit when Ford was like at the top of his game. I think about growing up in DC and as a kid being like, get a good government job. Everybody had, like, I didn't know what it meant to work at State Department or Treasury or anything. But since I'm from DC, it was like, get a government job. <laughs> like, right. that was the, that's who was hiring. 
you know, and you get your cousin a job and you get your aunt a job and you get your sister a job. Like, so when big comp big companies have big responsibilities, so whether or not they're less scrappy, um, you know, it doesn't matter because as long as they do the work, like, because they have a bigger, bigger impact. And when it comes to smaller companies, if they do the real work, hopefully we'll dismantle the big companies because nobody should have a staff that big, like. Capitalism is a hell of a drug at the end of the day. That's my next tattoo. <laughs> that is a great quote. Um, you know, when it, when it, when it comes to uh, the overall agenda to, de you know, in DEI, when it comes to the corporate spaces, um, what do you think the overall DEI agenda should be mm -hmm. um, in a perfect world? Oh, America. Um, there's so much to do. There's so many things to think about. Um, intersectionality is something that we really try to embody uh, and show films that show not just the Black experience, but the queer experience, but the woman experience, but the Christian experience. These are, I'm just talking about myself right now. Um, as a person, I, I hold so many multiple identities. So every time we are talking about DEIB work, we have to really put at the center every single way a person can walk through this world. Um, for me, sometimes staying on top of things as a person in sales, as a person who wants to always make sure I know the cutting edge research, I know what could help my clients, what could support them on their journey, I have to read a lot, right? And so the other day, DEIB as an industry, as a conversation, um, as a workplace initiative, really lost me. I saw an article that was like, how time zone bias is hurting your company. And I just was like, what the hell? <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if I said, what in the world is time zone bias? And who has that kind of time? Like, I just, it's one thing to recognize people's identities and intersectionality and making sure that you don't have too many happy hours after work because you're not prioritizing parents, all the things, but time zone bias, time zone bias, like, what are you talking about? Shut up, shut up. So for me, I think it's important to, for DEIB in terms of an end game, is not to get so involved in the, the inertia and the small things. For me, if DEIB is really done right, we're going to dismantle capitalism. <laughs> if we're going to talk about inclusion and advancement and making space for everybody at the so-called table, which I read an article this morning, it was like, maybe we shouldn't have a table. Um, it's just always changing. But I think the end game is the end of capitalism and nobody really wants to talk about that. Like why is it, if a company has 30,000 team members, that means those are 30,000 team members who aren't running a small business or doing something for their own community and their local city. Like I just sometimes think it's, it needs to be kind of working to destroy the thing that's been holding us back as a society for so long in the first place. Um, it's a little controversial, but that's what I feel. Yeah, that's a really interesting take. Um, and I, I know that you've made a lot of great um, connections with organizations and helped change their organizations from within. Um, and when we talk about changing organizations with the work that you do, what has been kind of a use case that you've seen 
for companies that come in one way and uh-huh. they essentially leave um, your organization feeling oh. a different way? That's a great question because that's the point, right? It's like you want to transform, you want to transmute. I, I feel like, and it's weird being remote, but I feel like once you go into a movie theater, you come in one way and you come out another way. So we had a client who watched one of our films, um, Miller and Stein, which is the story of a trans woman who's outed in her workplace and just has to deal with her coworker who's like, oh, you know, starts looking at her differently. And then the coworker outs her to the supervisor. Um, and then that's a hard conversation. Beautiful, beautiful film in a Midwestern town. Um, and so after one of a team member saw the film, they were like, oh, we don't even have trans people at this company. We don't need these types of films. We don't, this story was nice, but this isn't our thing. And so you you worked with one of our facilitators, Spencer. He was like, you know, kind of challenged them on that. And that employee went to their HR department, found out that yes, they do have trans people, because duh. Um And he also found out that they didn't have, that none of the trans employees were on their health insurance because the health insurance didn't make room outside of the binary. It was like he or she, male or female, there was nothing else for them to pick. Uh, So they were able to work with the HR department, work with their health insurance provider and change the policy to be non-binary. And that made an effect for the trans employees at that company. Uh, So that is one of my proudest moments in terms of how film can really encourage and change people's lives. And if not their day. So it's again, going back to the idea of, I'm not telling somebody they're wrong or this is what you should do. It's experiential learning. It's about watching a film and letting that story inspire you and having kind of the systems and mechanisms to let it go where it wants to go. That's awesome. And, you know, I know that you have, I feel like your career journey has, is, has been kind of beautifully placed for you to be where you are now. And I think it seems like storytelling has been a big part of that. Um, you know, and when we talk about transferable skills, um, you're, you're a poet, you're an artist, you're a creative, um, but then you're also working in sales. So from a personal perspective, do you feel like your uh, background in education and storytelling helps uh, in, in, with your sales career? What do you think? Absolutely. Um, Sales is wild. So I'm learning so much. I've been in sales for two years now and I'm finding out that it's really a science. It's just about how many people you reach out to, how you qualify folks, how you get them through your pipeline, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's like, can I help you? Um, It's as simple as that. And if I can't go to Burger King, go to Cava, go to Chipotle, but if I can help you at Cedar Spark, let's do the thing. And if I can't go to Matheson, you know what I'm saying? Go to different, go to, I don't know. It's like a thousand DEI consultants out here in these streets because it's a huge industry right now. So, but if I, Jay Flower Foster can help you with story, with film, if you connect with me and I connect with you and we know that your team members uh, will appreciate this, this, uh, this approach uh, and you want to see this kind of difference. If you want to do something like long-term and like really fight with us. And if you want me in your corner, then let's do that. So I just, I look at sales in a way, and it's funny because it's like, can I tell you a story? 
now we're talking about stories, but this is something that helped guide me. So I've always been a poet and a writer, but I also have been a producer. And sometimes out of necessity, like I've had to raise money for my films. I've had to promote my stuff on my own. Like when I talk about no company should be so big as a filmmaker at the end of the day, no matter what you're watching, but if you're watching Hulu, you're really watching Disney. You know what I'm saying? If you're watching Netflix, you're really watching AWS. Like if you're watching, it's like three major distributors and everyone else is kind of just playing into their funnel. And that's a problem. So we have to create these spaces for ourselves. We have to create these audiences for ourselves. And I'm driven to do that. Um, but as a kid, third grade, will never forget, I was bored in class as per usual. And I had a piece of construction paper and I had a, what's this machine? You can't see me. I wish our cameras were on. Um, a hole puncher. So I punched, I folded the, the paper and I hole punched it, hole punched it, hole punched it. And I put a little yarn in it and I made a little purse. It was so cute. A little purse and it opened, a little construction paper purse. And this girl was like, oh, I like that. I want one. And I said, I will sell it to you for 10 cents, but for 25 cents, I will teach you how to make it. <laughs> and I made like a whole dollar then. <laughs> I made a whole dollar and I just, that image of me, I just will never forget. Like it makes me feel when I feel confused or I feel lost in terms of like producing and sales and like the executive part is taking up too much of my time or I need to focus more on finishing my feature screenplay on doing another, another open mic. Like when I feel like torn between both worlds, I just remember that whole puncher and like I have the sauce and the gift and the balance and energy to do both. I had it when I was eight years old in Mrs. Muhich's class, and I have it now. I might have to get a tattoo of a hole puncher. <laughs> it just might. Uh, that would be dope. Um, I won't forget. Right. Uh, so Jade Flower, uh, before we wrap up, um, where can listeners go to get in touch with you? Um. Should I tell them about my OnlyFans? I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> listeners can get in touch with me on a DEIB level on LinkedIn. I'm doing posts every other day. I'm doing a lot of research. I'm doing a lot of reflecting on my own experiences in the workplace um, and working with our with my team just to make sure that we are making sure that we're positioning story as a tool uh, for power. And we've seen people use narrative in the political space. And so now it's time to use narrative to change the work space. Uh, so LinkedIn is where I'm on and popping. And if you want to see me in a casual way, then I'm also on Instagram as Jade Flower Foster. And I live in Baltimore. So if anybody's in Baltimore, I would love a friend. <laughs> I just moved to Baltimore a year and a half ago and I'm looking for friends in Baltimore for sure. And I'm vaccinated, so there you go. <laughs> awesome uh, Jay Flower um, for the listeners that are DEI professionals what would you urge them to do after listening to this episode mm. uh, to work with intention everyone says that DEIB is performative blah 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 um, 
but it's not it's not just work from the heart and get it done and definitely i see how tired and fatigued and stressed dei officers are and that help is here there are dozens of companies like you and ours uh that are here to support and anchor them and and the foundational uh, support that's needed to do this for the long haul. It's not an instantaneous thing. You know what I'm saying? Our biggest measurement of success sometimes is retention. <laughs> like, it's not, you're not gonna get it through a survey. So just keep hope alive, stay black, do the work. Love it. We can't end it any better than that. Jade Flower, thank you for being on the Voices of Inclusion podcast. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. I had a great time. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io and book a call to speak with us. The link is in the description. We're looking forward to connecting with you next time.